you'd open your Bibles, please, to Daniel chapter 7 this morning. Daniel chapter 7. Before we begin our journey through this most amazing passage of Scripture, let's bow and look to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the Word and those who are here to partake of it today. We realize that this passage of Scripture is inspired of you and is profitable for us. I pray that that would become clear by power of the Holy Spirit in each of our minds and hearts, and we'll thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Just this past week, it was reported that China and the Soviet Union have joined together to combine military operations. Zion's Hope reported this week that by the year 2025, if the Lord tarries, Israel's Jewish population will decline by 10% and Israel's Arab population will increase by 25%. We know that there's terrible fighting that's taking place right now in the Middle East all over land. In fact, one Associated Press writer said this week that Israel has world admiration for pulling out of the Gaza Strip. This is land that God said she is to have. Is God still in control if Israel is giving up her land? Is God still in control when you read of job insecurities, floods in Europe, hurricanes in Florida? Is God still in control when you read the housing market is plunging? Is God aware of this? Is he really on his throne? The book of Daniel is a book that says not only is God aware of things, he's controlling them. The book of Daniel is a book that says God presides over the rise and fall of all power, and he presides over all the political power that's ruling the world, and yet he's also presiding over the fall of a little sparrow. The Word of God teaches us that God is a God who rules over all major powers of the universe, and yet he also knows the very numbers of hair on your head. That kind of truth about the sovereignty of God leaps at us from this book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 is a pivotal point in the book of Daniel. In fact, it is a pivotal point in the Bible. Those who have carefully studied the book observe that Daniel 7 begins basically the second part of the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapters 1 to 6, there are generalities and stories revealed, remarkable generalities, remarkable stories, but in Daniel 7 to 12, you have specific visions given. In chapters 1 to 6, you describe, or Daniel describes, the sovereign program of God for the Gentiles, but in chapters 7 to 12, Daniel is very narrow to describe the sovereign program of God for Israel. And in these next chapters in the book of Daniel are four visions. The first one we're going to look at today is in chapter 7. The second one's in chapter 8. The third one's in chapter 9. And the fourth vision shows up in chapters 10 to 12. Now the visions of Daniel in chapter 7 are contrasted four ways from that vision that was given to Nebuchadnezzar back in chapter 2. You'll recall that Nebuchadnezzar saw a great statue. Its head was like gold. Its breast and arms were like silver. Its belly and thighs were like bronze. And its legs and feet were like iron and clay. There is a major contrast, four major contrasts, between that vision in chapter 2 and the one Daniel gives us here in chapter 7. First of all, in chapter 2, the vision was given to a wicked heathen king, Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel 7, this vision is given to a righteous godly prophet whose name is Daniel. This is the first time in the book of Daniel where he's given a direct vision concerning God's program. Prior to this, he was giving interpretations of things that were revealed to other people. But now Daniel is having God speak to him. Secondly, in chapter 2, Daniel is the interpreter. In chapter 7, it's an angel who will be an interpreter. 
Thirdly, in chapter 2, world history is viewed from man's viewpoint. In chapter 7, you're getting world history viewed from God's viewpoint. And there's no question that history may look impressive from man's perspective, but it's evil from God's perspective. The fact of the matter is God views history as immoral, brutal, and depraved. And he ultimately will crush all evil powers. The fourth contrast is in chapter 2, the prophecies are general. But in chapter 7, they are very specific. The specifics of God's program are carefully laid out in Daniel chapter 7. And what we learn is this. God is in sovereign control of all power. He's in sovereign control of every political power in this entire Gentile world. And he'll continue to be in control until all evil is finally abolished by him and he establishes his eternal kingdom once again for Israel, a nation Israel. And God wants you to realize that as he's controlling all things that are taking place, he still cares for the individuals. He still cares for you. And he has so much care for you that he actually spells out for you what's going on in his program. He wants you to know that he is in charge, even though things look bizarre. God is controlling the world. He wants his people to know it. His sovereignty is running things all over the world this very hour. There are secret things that are being worked out all over the world, secret schemes that are taking place that you and I know nothing about. From the toppling of a rock to terrorist bombs in Europe, God is sovereign, he's at work, he's behind the scenes, and he's working things to his conclusion. That's exactly what Daniel 7 teaches us. God is the one who allows powers to reign. He will allow an antichrist to surface. He'll come into existence and then he'll cast that antichrist into burning fire. God is the one who's calling the shots in the world. He's in sovereign charge. His purposes, his will, his program will stand. And Daniel 7 is a chapter that reveals that. Now, one reason why God gives this information to Daniel is because of the encouragement that it would have been to Israel. You see, when political powers were dominating the nation Israel, they were proudly attributing the success of their achievements to their false idols and their false gods. And so when Israel was being dominated by these Gentile powers, as she basically is being dominated today, you can begin to wonder, do we have any real relationship to the God of Israel when in fact we're not being dominated by the God of Israel, we're being dominated by ruthless people and ruthless powers. God said, I've got some news for you. I'm the one who's controlling those ruthless powers. I'm the one who permits them to reign. I haven't abandoned you as my nation. I have a meticulous plan, God says in Daniel, that's being worked out in history. It includes these powers actually existing. Now when someone rules or dominates your world who's godless, and you're trying to be faithful to the Lord, you can begin to wonder who's in control, who's calling the shots. I'm trying to live my life for the Lord and somebody who's in my world is godless and they seem to have the power, they seem to have the clout. God says, I have a message for you. I'm still on the throne. I'm still the one who's in sovereign charge and I have my purposes that are at work. Now there are two main observations I want you to see from this text before us today. First of all, what God permitted Daniel to see, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. God allowed Daniel to see a dream comprised of visions 
And the visions that he allowed him to see were the specific future plans that he had and the powers that he had, the ones that he would allow to come into existence. There are three facts I want to show you from verse 1. First of all, Daniel saw this in the first year of the reign of Belshazzar. Now what that means is that Daniel saw this about nine years after Nebuchadnezzar had died in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. This is about 14 years before the fall of Babylon, before Israel was going to be allowed to go back to her land and ultimately rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. It was then when Daniel received a vision of events, and the events occur apparently between chapters 4 and 5 in the book of Daniel. During that time, Daniel had for the most part been forgotten. In fact, you'll recall when Belshazzar came to power and that handwriting was on the wall that Daniel had to come in and interpret, Belshazzar had pretty much forgotten about Daniel. He didn't even know who Daniel was. But God knew who Daniel was. And during that time period, God was allowing Daniel to come to terms with truth, the likes of which are not found anywhere else in Scripture. And he wanted Daniel to know that even though you had a buffoon like Belshazzar on the throne, it was God who was still in charge. It was God who was still sovereign. Daniel knew of this vision the night he translated God's word for Belshazzar when he said you're going to be overthrown. He knew that God had a program that was in operation and it would be comprised of one power that would rise up and overtake another power. And when you know that God is in control of your world, that helps you cope with just about anything you're going through. Many of us have lost loved ones, people that we love, people that we care about. I've seen this time and time again. When people realize that God's the one who controls those moments of life and death. God's the one who's on the throne. He's the one who's in charge. It has a ministering effect on you. And that's what it did for Daniel. The second fact is that Daniel saw this vision at night while he was lying in his bed. Now this was a real vision. This wasn't a dream that he had because he ate the wrong kinds of food, like most of us have dreams. This was a night vision. And this night vision unfolds like an act, successive act of plays that would occur in a Broadway show. Now visions are talked about in the Old Testament quite a bit. A lot of visions were false visions. People invented them and made them up. They really weren't from God. Some of them, according to Jeremiah, were made up of their own imagination. Often they were infrequent. It wasn't the norm where God gave a series of visions. But this one was real. This was a real vision and dream that Daniel had, which unlocked the future. The third fact is Daniel wrote down what he saw, verse 1, and he wrote the dream down. Daniel wrote down specifically what he saw in the dream, in fact, the Hebrew word for summary means Daniel wrote down all significant details that pertain to this remarkable dream. You see, this is one that's inspired by God. This is one that God wanted written down, so Daniel wrote it down. This is, by the way, one of the great evidences that Daniel was the one who wrote this book of Daniel because nobody else would have known about this dream and could have penned what this dream was all about. Now the second observation is Daniel's written summary of what he saw in verses 2 to 14. There are three parts to what he saw. Two of them we're going to carefully cover today. The third one, Lord willing, we'll look at next Sunday. First of all, he saw four winds of heaven stirring a great sea. Verse 2 tells us that. I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, we're not told exactly what that means, but we may contextually conclude that what this means is that Daniel saw all powers stirring the world were authorized out of heaven. In other words, the powers that were ruling the world, that were causing a stir on earth, were authorized by heaven, literally in Hebrew, the heavens. 
Now we know from studying the Bible that the noun sea is often used as a metaphor to refer to Gentile nations and powers. In several passages of scripture, I've cited them for you in your notes. We also know that we talk about, at times, the sea of humanity. We use that term sea also to refer to people when we use it as the sea of humanity. And wind, oftentimes in Scripture, refers to God's sovereignty at work, blowing in any direction that it wants to blow, accomplishing what God wants the wind to accomplish. It speaks of the fact that God is at work. There's no still calm. We don't necessarily see all the things that the Spirit is doing when He's blowing and doing His work, but we see the effects of the work. So here's what you have here given to us in Daniel. The picture is you have heaven that's in charge of the powers that are right now stirring the world. The invisible winds of God are blowing across Gentile powers. He permits them to rise up. He makes them, allows them to have a stir for a while. When he says that there are four winds, it would indicate they come from four different directions from which the powers arise. God is the one who rules over kingdoms of men. It doesn't matter where the power is, what time the power is, or who the power is, or even the direction from which it arises, God is still sovereign. And whether or not the power causes war or strife, God is still sovereign. The fact of the matter is, political leaders and rulers are not controlling the world. God is controlling the world. And until Jesus Christ comes back, which he predicts in this very chapter, and establishes his own personal kingdom on earth, you can be sure there will be a lot of turmoil and stirring and restlessness in the world until Christ reigns. That's the first thing Daniel saw. Now the second part is he saw four great beasts that were different from one another, verses 3 to 8. The first thing I want you to notice is that these worldly powers are beastly. That's what he says in verse 3. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea different from one another. What you have are four great Gentile powers rising up to great authority. In the book of Hosea, these beasts, lion, leopard, and bear, are described as being used by God to bring judgment on Israel because she forgot about God. These very beasts. In other words, the reason why God allowed these beastly powers to come to power is because Israel didn't submit to God. So God would raise up one of these beastly powers and allow that beastly power to overtake the nation hopefully to bring that nation to repentance, but obviously it hasn't come to repentance yet because you don't have Israel in her land and you don't have the righteous king reigning over her, but that's why God allows these powers to come into existence. Now, as we read this morning in verse 17, we know that these four beasts refer to four different Gentile earthly kings who will head up an earthly power. God permits four different earthly powers to reign over Israel, and each has a very distinct reign. They do not operate the same way. They're not seen the same. They operate differently. Each beast comes up out of the Gentile world, and there is a specific chronological order in the way that they come up, and that is controlled by God. And the imagery that's used here that we're going to look at pertaining to each power is exactly what God would permit. And using this beastly metaphor is something that we do in our day. For example, we refer to political powers as beastly. Great Britain is represented by a lion. Russia is represented by a bear. China is represented by a dragon. The United States is represented by an eagle. This kind of political classification where you classify a world power by some metaphor of an animal or something is not new to our time. It's as old as the Bible. It's inspired by God and is found right here in the book of Daniel. Now the thing I want you to notice is that 
The beasts do not come out at one time. They don't rise to power at one. There's a sequential order to their power. You have first, which shows up in verse 4. The first was like a lion. And then you have a second one that shows up in verse 5. And the second one and the third one and the fourth one. What this tells us, ladies and gentlemen, is that there is a specific chronology to the powers that God will permit to rise and fall. Edward Gibbon wrote The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. It's quite an interesting work, but the fact of the matter is God has not just caused the Roman Empire to rise and fall. He's been responsible for all empires to rise and fall. He's the one who permits any power to rule the world. And if you check history, you will discover that there have only been four that have actually ruled the world and only four that have truly dominated Israel. Now, there are four beasts that are spelled out here. We want to look at them in exactly the way Daniel reveals it. First of all, the first beast was like a lion. Verse 4, the first was like a lion, had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. Now, this first beast was like a lion. It was a reference to the Babylonian Empire, which was certainly operating when Daniel was alive. It's interesting that Jeremiah the prophet specifically referred to Nebuchadnezzar as the Babylonian Empire, and he referred to it as a lion. Ezekiel classifies it as an eagle. The lion symbolizes the great Babylonian superiority that that power once had. Fact of the matter is, when we went to war with Iraq, Saddam Hussein still talked of Nebuchadnezzar, and when he showed some of his palaces, he still had the heads of lion that were on some of those palaces. So this is not something foreign even to our time. Now, the lion described here in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 4 had four very unique qualities. It had wings of an eagle. Archaeological discoveries have found that the national symbol of Babylon was a winged lion. They have unearthed some sculptures of huge winged lions which stood at entrances to some of the Babylonian royal palaces and the wings spoke of rapid conquest. You'll notice, secondly, its wings were plucked out. This is a dramatic alteration in this vision that Daniel saw. What you have described here is a power that's just rolling along powerfully, politically, and it's moving rapidly, and all of a sudden, it's brought to a halt. Its rapid conquest is cut off because its wings are plucked out. And that is exactly what happened when Nebuchadnezzar went insane. He was just rolling along. He thought everything was just fine. All of a sudden, he ends up like a beast out eating grass in a field, and all of a sudden, that conquest came to a stop. The third thing that is predicted is it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. That's a clear prediction to what would happen to Nebuchadnezzar. He was out there in the field eating grass like a beast, as we saw in our previous studies, and God literally took him back and stood him back on two feet, so he was like a man again. And fourthly, it is revealed that he was given a human mind. And it is known that Nebuchadnezzar became much more humane in the way he ruled. From that time, he'd been humbled by God. Also, what we learn is that Gentile leaders are human leaders, even though they can look and act beastly. So Nebuchadnezzar went from being beastly to being a human. And the fact of the matter is, this was the first beast that was controlling Israel when Daniel lived and he saw this vision. It is true and literal in the way it was fulfilled. Which brings us to beast number two, the second beast like a bear, verse five. And behold, another beast, the second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, arise, devour much meat. 
Now this second beast is like a bear. It's a reference to the Medo-Persian Empire. It was clearly predicted that the Medo-Persian Empire would replace Babylon. Daniel predicted that back in chapter 5 and also in chapter 8. A bear is a bloodthirsty animal. Herodotus, the historian, said that the Medes and the Persians were cruel in the way that sometimes they would control a part of the world. They would actually pull the skin off men while they were alive, just like a bear would do, just viciously attack them. So this is good imagery for the Medo-Persian power. Now, there are three very unique qualities that are brought out in verse 5 about this particular power. First of all, it was raised up on one side. You notice that. That's an odd thing. It was raised up on one side. What this tells us is... When this power would dominate, there would be one side that would be more dominate than another. And it is certainly known from history that Persia was far more superior than the Medes. The power which came into existence was somewhat of a partnership, but the fact of the matter is Persia was much more the dominating power, and it was the power that actually went on to become its own power. The second quality is it had three ribs in its mouth when it came into power. Now, according to Xenophon, who was a historian, there were three main vicious conquests that were involved when the Medes and the Persians took the land from the Babylons. First of all, they took over Babylon, then Lydia, then Egypt. And the description of their overtaking these areas, they were vicious attack. And there were three main vicious attack. It devoured those powers. It took control of the world. Just exactly what was predicted, there would be three main vicious attacks that would occur. The third thing that's brought out is that it was ordered to rise up and devour much meat. This power was not satisfied with what it initially had with the conquest of the Babylonian world, but it wanted more conquest, it wanted more power, which she was granted. The Mede and Persian Empire became much larger than the kingdom of the Babylonians under the direction of Cyrus the Great. This power conquered many more nations and more empires than Babylon had ever dreamed about. But God says, I want you to know something. I'm the one controlling this power. This is not running out of my control. I'm watching exactly what's going on and controlling it. Which brings us to the third beast. It was like a leopard. Verse 6 says, After this, I kept looking and behold another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. Now notice that, four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. This is a reference to the Grecian or the Greece Empire, the Empire of Greece. Greece was clearly predicted in Daniel chapter 8 that it would be the power that would replace the Medes and the Persians. And this leopard imagery is very unique and there are three very unique qualities. There would be this leopard type individual, this swift, cunning, bloodthirsty, cruel type of person and that's good symbolism for Alexander the Great who ended up deifying himself. There are three qualities that are brought out about the Grecian Empire that God would allow to come to power. First of all, it had on its back four wings. Now what that indicates is that this Grecian Empire, predicted by Daniel, would expand at a very unusual speed. The fact of the matter is, in eight years, the Empire of Greece conquered more than 11,000 miles of territory in the west all the way to India in the east, to Africa in the south. Dr. John Wolverd said the conquest of the Grecian Empire were of lightning character. And he said the conquests that Greece had so rapidly are unprecedented in ancient history. The second quality that's brought out about this power is that it had four heads. Alexander died partially of malaria and partially because he was an alcoholic. He died at age 32. 
And when Alexander the Great died, he divided his power among four key generals, Ptolemy I, Seleucus, Lysimachus, and Cassander. Those four took over four different parts of the Grecian Empire when Alexander died. He was no longer there. They weren't prepared to turn the power over to anyone. Alexander didn't have a son who could inherit the power, so they turned it over to the military generals, which is exactly what is predicted precisely in verse 6. And beast had four heads. And then notice the third quality. It was given dominion. Dominion was given to it. Now that's interesting. Because the credit for the empire of Greece is most of the time given to Alexander the Great. In fact, Hollywood made a movie of this. But you must honestly ask yourself, how is it possible that Alexander and an army of 35,000 men could defeat an entire world comprised of millions of people? In fact, in his first battle with the Medes and the Persians, he was up against two to 300,000 men. How in the world did he win? Most attribute the success of Alexander's military achievements to his genius, but that isn't what gave him victory. The truth is, Alexander couldn't even conquer himself because at age 32, he was a drunk and he died. It was God who permitted him to rise to power. It was God who gives dominion. And every single leader needs to understand this and admit this. World leaders need to understand this point. It is God who gives them their power. It is God who will hold them accountable for what he's given them. Whether it be in your own private world or whether it be in the big political world, it is God who gives power and authority and those who have it are accountable to God for what he's given them. Which brings us to the fourth beast. Now, the fourth beast is described in verses 7 to 8. It's a dreadful beast. It turns out to be, and we'll talk about this much later in the book of Daniel, a reference to the Roman Empire and the Antichrist. The fourth beast is not specifically symbolized by any known animal, but when the Apostle John writes the book of Revelation in chapter 13, he uses all three of these images to describe that beast. It's a power like a leopard, a bear, and a lion. This power will be the worst of all, the most ferocious. This one is not specifically named in the book of Daniel, but this is the power that would come into power after Greece. This beast would be very unique. And there are nine qualities brought out about this beast that these other beasts do not have. First of all, it was a dreadful, terrifying, extremely strong beast. He kept looking, according to verse 7, and I saw this fourth beast. It was dreadful, terrifying, and extremely strong. That's exactly what the Roman world was like. Nobody dared stand against the Romans. They were a dreaded power. You didn't dare even speak a word against the emperor of Rome because it was such a fierce legion that was controlling the world. Secondly, it's described as large iron teeth. That describes exactly what the Roman world was like. The Roman military and soldiers were vicious and cruel. They would rip people to shreds. Thirdly, it devoured, it crushed, it trampled with its feet. It describes a power that was anything but kind. And all you have to do is read what it was like in Roman history. It was Rome who crucified Peter. It was Rome who cut off the head of the Apostle Paul. It was Rome who banished the Apostle John to the island of Patmos. It was Rome who burned and butchered Christian men, women, and children. It was Rome who fed them as a show for people to watch and the Colosseum to wild animals. It was Rome who did all of this. 
The fourth quality is it was different than the other beasts that ever existed. Daniel says it was different from all the other beasts. And the fifth quality is it had ten horns. Now in Nebuchadnezzar's vision in chapter 2, it had ten toes standing side by side. In Daniel's vision, it has ten horns, which we know are ten kings that comprise ten kingdoms, which are going to crush the whole world. I want you to notice what Daniel says in verse 23 of chapter 7. Daniel says, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there has never been a time in history where the fulfillment of what's described here has happened. Rome has never been replaced by another great power that took over the world, and Rome has never been broken down into ten powers. The empire seemed to disappear by internal corruption. The people of Rome seemed to blend in with other nations. But there does seem to be something on the horizon that would indicate Rome could just about be rebuilt and reunited. The Roman Empire in the first century AD, at the time of its greatest impact, at the time of its greatest extent, included generally what is now known to be England. It also included areas, Turkey, Iraq, part of Syria, Palestine, Egypt, the north littoral of Africa, all of southern Europe were within its boundaries. And they didn't seem to ever be getting along until after World War II, when somebody said, let's form a group and call it NATO. And that was a turning point in history because all of a sudden we could begin to see there might be a revival of this power. It is possible that this Rome that never seemed to really go away, it didn't disappear, could be revived. And Daniel says it's going to be revived. It'll be revived into ten major powers, ten major horns. And while Daniel was contemplating this in verse 8, there was another horn that came up from among the beast, which we will show to be very clearly in chapter 11, the Antichrist. He quickly arises to power. This adds four more qualities to this beast, which make it even worse. Number six, it had a little horn that arose from within it. I want you to notice that. It is said there in verse 8, While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up from among them. Ladies and gentlemen, don't miss this. The Antichrist will come out of this revived Roman Empire. He will come out of one of those ten nations that are in power and present on earth at the time that he arises. He comes out from them. You'll notice the next feature. Three of the ten horns were pulled up by the roots before the little horn. And three of the first horns were pulled up by the roots before it. He's going to be a dictator. He will arise by taking over three of those ten powers that are reviving together. He will be controlling them. He'll take over the three horns, and then he's going to take over the world. The eighth fact I want you to see is the little horn possessed eyes like the eyes of men. It says that he had eyes like the eyes of men. What this indicates is that he is a normal-looking man. He looks like a man, but he is not a man. This man is a satanic masterpiece. In verse 8, he looks like he's just a normal guy, but he's not. Eyes like the eyes of men is a satanic imagery. He will not be empowered by manly things. He'll be empowered by the evil one. And notice the ninth quality in verse 8, and he had a mouth that boasted great things. He will arrogantly speak against God. Now what you have described in the fourth power 
are three phases of history in the Roman Empire. You have, first of all, the beastly phase, where it surfaces as a beast, a vicious, cruel beast. Then you have the ten horn, the ten kingdom phase. And then you have the little horn or the antichrist phase. Now when you search through the annals of history, you will conclude that certainly there's been a beastly phase for Rome when Rome did some terrible beastly things. Pick up a history book and read the Acts of Caligula. Read what it was like when Nero was emperor. Read some of the things that Domitian did when they were controlling the world. There's no doubt when you read first century Roman history that there was a beastly phase clearly predicted by Daniel. However, there's nothing that you can find in history that corresponds to the ten-nation confederacy phase. And there's certainly nothing you can find in history yet that corresponds to the ten-nation confederacy phase that is taken over by one king which endures until God sets up his kingdom on earth. What this means is that much of what Daniel has written here is still futuristic. It's about to happen. It hasn't happened yet. There's going to be a revival of Europe. And I believe what's happening with these terrorist bombs and these uniting of nations, and I'm watching this closely as I see how nations are relating to each other over there, is all starting to put together a revival, and there will be ten major national powers who will come under control of a world dictator who ultimately will rise to power and be cast into the lake of fire. And all of that will be a prelude to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now the third part that we'll look at next time is Daniel saw these beasts before God established his throne on earth. I just want you to notice verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. All of those beastly things are allowed to happen until God sets up his throne on earth. Ladies and gentlemen, take a look at your world. It's not getting better. We tend to think that we're so civilized and so cultured but just watch the news. Look at current events. We're getting worse. Our culture is beastly. And it's getting more beastly. It's sick. It's depraved. Like one writer said, we have whirlpool bathtubs and gas barbecues. We have computers. We have streamlined cars. We have central air conditioning and automatic sprinkling systems. We can put a man on the moon. We can move our combat troops all around the world. We glory in all our advancements and our achievements and we forget when we look at ourselves God sees us as depraved beasts. History is not getting better and it's not going to get better until God sets up his kingdom on earth. And that's what Daniel saw. And that's what Daniel revealed. There's no question that the primary point is that even when these beasts are ruling, and even when this world is deteriorating, it's still God at work. He's allowing these things to happen. He will ultimately set up his kingdom on earth that will last forever and ever. And that point is stressed over and over again in this book of Daniel. And there's a judgment that's talked about at the end of verse 10 of Daniel 7. It says, and the courts sat and the books were open. Friend, you're going to be judged by the books. There are a lot of different books according to 
eschatology, future events. There's the book of life. There's the works books, which every work you've ever done that has been sinful against God is kept in a book. You're storing up wrath. There's the book of remembrance in which the God remembers the faithful deeds, the faithful acts of his people. But if you're here today without Jesus Christ, you need to understand something. There are books being kept on your life. Every time you've thought something that's contrary to God, every time you've done something that's contrary to God, every time you've spoken something that's contrary to God, it's gone on your record in those books for you. And you're going to stand before the Ancient of Days one day and be judged. And there's only one way to have those books wiped out, and that's by the blood of the Lamb. And if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You may think you're sovereign in your world. You're the one that's in control. You're the one that's in charge. You have all kinds of time in life. You can just use time your way. Then you can decide what you're going to do and the way you decide you want to do it. But I want to tell you, you're not the one that's in charge. Every breath we have is a grant from God. He's the one who's ordaining everything, including the number of hairs on your head. So if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, you believe on him. You bow before him now, or he will force you to bow then. May we pray. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior right now, you pray something like this. God, I'm a sinner. I know it. I could write my own works books of the bad things I've done. But I thank you that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. And right now I place all of my faith in him to save me from all of my sins. Our Father, we do thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that you reveal the fact that you are a God and you are in control of what is going on in this world right now. The problems in the Middle East. The problems in the United States the problems in our own personal, private worlds. You are sovereign and in control. And may our lives shine forth like a Daniel that believes that and that lives that. In Jesus' name, amen.